Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What did one volcano say to the other volcano? I lava you. Did you hear about the bird that lost all of its feathers in a volcano? It was molten. My guest today is Isabel Yeo, marine volcanologist. That means that Izzy studies volcanoes underwater. I learned so much during my conversation with Izzy, chiefly that volcanoes are found everywhere and we really don't know that much about them. Today, Izzy and I chat about why it can actually be easier to study space than the ocean and what fieldwork really looks like including playing with ROVs and seeing fish with feet in thousands of feet of water. We chat about blue mining and what that means and how we and our everyday lives impact it. Izzy also explains the complexity of naming underwater seamounts, and I have a request for any listeners that like maps about halfway through, so stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Izzy, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thank you very much for having me. So we are going to chat about deep sea ocean exploration and underwater volcanoes and all kinds of cool stuff. But I really want to know, how did you even get started on this path? I mean, I suppose I am quite lucky in that I come from sort of background of being exposed to science. So as a a child, I was always exposed to lots of different things. My mum was pretty convinced that I was going to be an astronaut at one point. So I was quite lucky to have like very supportive parents. And at some point, I'm not sure who it was, some relative bought me a book on volcanoes and that was it from that point onwards. So I was sort of an obsessive then through school doing all of my, my childhood projects on volcanoes and that kind of thing. So I I had a pretty good idea of where I wanted to go, even when I was little, although that didn't go down very well with my careers advisors. Actually, when I told them I wanted to be a volcanologist, they suggested that I should have a a backup plan and that that wasn't a very realistic career path. So then I said that I wanted to be a jockey and that shut them up. I did. I, then I did a pretty classic route into sort of scientific research, really. So I did, I'm in the UK, so I did sort of GCSEs and A-levels in science subjects. Went to the University of Edinburgh, where I studied geology. And then from there, I went on and did a PhD at Durham University, which is also in the UK. And I hadn't really thought about, I knew I wanted to do volcanoes, but until I was a student, I hadn't really realised I wanted to do them underwater because it wasn't really something we had learned about really we did a lot of on-land field work and we went to Cyprus which is a really lovely on-land sort of exposure of what volcanoes on the seafloor actually look like but until that point I hadn't sort of it hadn't really occurred to me as an option and then I'd seen this project that was happening that was looking at the mid-Atlantic ridge and how earth's crust is constructed by volcanoes under the sea and I was like oh that sounds good so I applied for that and I was lucky enough to to get 
onto that project and then it just sort of became an obsession from there really so I've moved around a bit done a few different things went and lived in Germany for a bit and now I'm at the National Oceanography Centre in the UK where I sort of do a bunch of different research so quite a lot of submarine volcanology but also other marine geohazards so things like sort of seafloor cable hazards and pollution and things as well but mostly volcanoes because they're the best bit because that's where your passion truly lies yeah 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 absolutely that is so fascinating it's so funny to see how like kid obsessions can actually turn into careers yeah, I think it's quite an important thing to recognise, actually, because we've had a bit of a, a debate here in the UK recently about why girls aren't doing physics. And a few people have said things that maybe weren't that well advised. And I think, actually, if you can just encourage those sort of childhood interests, some really great things can come out of it. If you make people believe that they can do something, then uh, they're really capable of achieving them, I think. Absolutely. So you said something kind of when you were explaining how you got interested in volcanoes and how you got your career, that the ocean crust is built by volcanoes, which I started to learn when I was reading some of your research. And it makes total sense to me. But it's also, I mean, I guess when you are in school, you're kind of just taught like tectonic plates and things shifting around. So how does that all kind of work together? Yeah, so quite a lot of the earth is built by volcanoes, not all of it. So the continents that we sit on, I mean, also in a lot of cases built by volcanoes, but a different kind. But the oceanic crust, which underlies most of the big oceans, that's all built by mid-ocean ridges, so volcanic eruptions at mid-ocean ridges. And that happens where the tectonic plates are moving apart. So the earth is broken up into sort of the crust of the earth is broken up into lots of different plates and they move around and interact with each other. So sometimes they rub alongside each other, like in San Andreas, and they can produce big earthquakes. And in other places, one gets forced underneath another one. And then you get sort of arcs like the Pacific Ring of Fire, where you get lots of very explosive volcanoes. And then in other places, they move apart from each other. And there you get what we call mid-ocean ridges. And that's where you get this crust constructed. And there is one down the middle of the Atlantic, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. But there's also some in sort of all of the other oceans, pretty much, that you can think of. In those locations where the plates move apart from each other, they overlie the, the Earth's mantle. And as you get moving a part of the plates, you reduce the pressure on the mantle. And often when you take the pressure off something, it will melt. So if something's under high pressure, it's harder for it to melt because it can't get bigger. Um, but if you reduce the pressure, if the conditions are right, then it will melt. And that's exactly what happens at mid-ocean ridges. So you get melting of the mantle and then those melts erupt on the seafloor, usually in like a couple of thousands of meters of water. So, yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah. So what does that look like? I mean, we picture volcanoes on land and it's usually some kind of like mountainous looking structure and lots of molten magma, red hot spewing everywhere. But you put that in the water. Does that look the same? It depends on the water and it depends on the volcano. Uh, at Mid-Ocean Ridges, we get a quite diverse selection of different types of volcanoes. We still get red hot lava coming out, but because there's lots of pressure, it's harder for gases in it to dissolve. So by dissolve, I mean come out as bubbles. Most eruptions are driven, especially explosive ones, are driven by bubbles of water or carbon dioxide or sulfur dioxide a bit that are dissolved in that sort of magma before it erupts. But if you've got still lots of water pressure, that's much harder for it to happen. So the lava comes out and it erupts on the seafloor, but usually not very explosively. And then because it's coming into contact with water rather than air, it cools really quickly as well. So you get this like crust form on the outside really, really quickly. And it tends to form like normally what happens in a relatively sort of calm eruption is you form pillow lavas. And they're like sort of like big round bulbous lava forms. And they're very beautiful. 
and they all connect together and they form a lot of different types of, of sort of seafloor, what we'd call geomorphology, so different seafloor landforms, really. And some of them are really interesting and we don't even understand how they form currently and others we've got a better idea. The most common sort of hummocky cones, so they're just like little individual volcanic cones and they usually only erupt once so they they don't have like multiple eruptions like we'd expect from a big on-land volcano they just sort of erupt once and then that's it there there they are they've cooled down and that's it usually they a single eruption will form more than one of those so you'll get like an eruption along a fissure and then you'll get multiple cones that form along it then we also get these things called flat top seamounts and they're really interesting because they're big round volcanoes they're about a kilometer across and then they're completely flat on top. And normally when something's flat on top, it's because it's been above the sea. But at mid-ocean ridges, this has never happened. So they've never been exposed above the sea. It's not an erosional surface. People don't really fully understand yet how those form. So why they have this flat top and why they look like that. And then if you have very, very high effusion rates, if you have a really big eruption, so that tends to happen more where you've got plates moving apart from each other faster. There, you tend to get big run-out lava flows because the lava is coming out so quickly, even though that crust is forming quite fast, the lava breaks through it the whole time. And then you tend to form these sort of big, smooth run-out lava flows on the seafloor as well. So yeah, it's really diverse down there. And the interplay between all of those different types of volcanic systems is really complicated. And there's lots of unknowns still about it. For example, we don't really know how far magmas will travel sort of along a ridge and erupt. We don't know if they're all localised or maybe they can be transported tens of kilometres and erupt somewhere else. So, yeah, lots of questions. Yeah, this is so fascinating. So you're finding that, I mean, they all kind of erupt along the same fissure and it can be just different types of volcanoes that are creating these different magmas, but it's more or less along the same tectonic plates. Yeah, so different ridges are spreading at different rates. So we tend to separate mid-ocean ridges into slow, intermediate and fast spreading. And the mantle, I mean, the mantle has variation within it, so like compositional variation within it for all different kinds of reasons. But usually at a mid-ocean ridge, it's relatively simple melts. We tend to call it mid-ocean ridge basalt or more. And it's used as sort of like a standard to compare other lavas to because people joke about how boring it is. Like when, when we go on a cruise and I collect loads of basalt and I'm excited, everybody else says they're very dull, um, which is rude. But so it's it's usually compositionally quite simple. We do see variations in the composition, but not big variations. And it's usually a pretty pure mantle melt that you get. And the landforms that are produced primarily depend on how big the sort of amount of magma being erupted was and how quickly it came out. So fusion rate is really important in sort of defining what kind of landforms you get. And that varies between slow, intermediate and fast spreading ridges. So at slow spreading ridges, we don't really think that we get magma chambers in the same way. So normally when we picture sort of a classic volcano, it's got like this chamber underneath it of molten magma that's like ready to erupt at any point. That's not super realistic anyway, but it's the way that most people would sort of envision a volcanic system. But at slow spreading ridges, the crust is so cold that you can't maintain a sort of big chamber of melt long term. So they're quite ephemeral, the magma chambers. They come and go. They freeze quite quickly. And so you get small eruptions quite far dispersed in time. So you tend to get pillow lavas and like hummocky flows there. Whereas where the plates are moving much faster, you've got a higher temperature gradient there. So the crust underneath them is a bit hotter. It's a bit easier to maintain melt. We usually have pretty steady state magma chambers, in inverted commas, underneath them. And so you get larger volume, faster run out eruptions. So compositionally, they're slightly different, but also the effusion rate there is very different, which means that the landforms you produce look quite different. And landforms meaning, you know, the type of crust that's formed? 
Yeah. So again, compositionally, in terms of like the chemistry of the actual loves that are coming out, not hugely different. There are some differences. So it's more of a structure in what it looks like. Exactly. Yeah. Structurally, they can be quite variable. And that's interesting too, because you often form sort of like thicker, colder volcanic crust close to a slow spreading ridge than you do a fast spreading one. This is so fascinating. <laughs> so what is the most common, like these slow spreading ones and like the pillowy sort of byproduct or the more fast moving ones? They're both common, but there's more slow spreading ridges as a sort of length of the, the mid-ocean ridge system than there are super fast ones. But there's a, like it's a whole diversity. You get ultra slow spreading ridges as well. And they're super interesting because if you get spreading that's really, really slow, and we see this in places on slow spreading ridges as well, but if you have really, really slow spreading, you don't melt anything. So because the movement is so slow and the crust is so cold, you hardly get any melting of the mantle underneath at all. And what happens there is that when the plates move apart, instead of erupting lavas, you get these sort of very deep faults. So faults are like cracks in the crust where things can sort of move past each other. So like brittle fractures really with movement on. And you can get those that become really deep rooted. And instead of getting volcanic eruptions, what happens is you keep extending and keep extending, keep stretching, keep stretching the crust there. And eventually you start to expose mantle rocks on the seafloor. So in really, really slow settings where you have hardly any volcanic material, you'll get seafloor like that. So you get a full spectrum from that through to thick, higher fusion rate volcanic piles, all produced by the same tectonic process, but just at different rates. This is amazing. Now, how do you even see this, right? Like you said, this is thousands of meters down, like Mid-Atlantic Ridge is not a shallow area of the ocean. So how do you even go down and like see what's happening? We rely on a lot of technology. I mean, the whole plate tectonic theory is built on a history of research cruises that become progressively more and more technologically advanced. Like some of the first sort of inferences that there was even a Mid-Atlantic Ridge were in like the 1850s. And they were mostly by naval ships that were just sort of, you know, looking at how deep the ocean was in a straight line. But now we have much more technology. So we use a combination of geophysical techniques and also robots and sometimes submarines. I've never been in a submarine, but some people do still use them. And we go out usually with a research vessel, so on a big ship. And there'll be a whole variety of people there, from the crew that run the ship to the science party who are obsessed with collecting rocks you know, whatever else they're, they're interested in. We usually have something that's quite nice about it is because deploying this infrastructure is quite expensive. Usually you get quite a nice diversity of people working together. So people that are interested in all the different aspects of the science will go. So you'll have geologists, you'll have seismologists, you'll have geochemists, you'll have biologists, oceanographers, all sorts. So you learn a lot, which is really nice. And then we'll also usually have like a big sort of selection of technical people that run our equipment. So one of the first things we tend to do is to map the seafloor. Mapping the seafloor is such a, a hard thing to do and it's so expensive and the oceans are so big. And there are a lot of different programs now that are aimed at just mapping what the seafloor looks like, even at sort of 150 metre resolution. You often hear that we know more about planets than we do about the bottom of the ocean. And that's not entirely true. But in terms of its actual shape, that's probably the case because we can't see through water with satellites. So we have to run ships or other kinds of vessels over the sea to image what the seafloor actually looks like. Right. This is using like side scan sonar or something similar? Yeah. So we use side scan as one of the things. So that's where you have sound that looks out to either side and it looks at how bright the reflection of the seafloor is. Primarily, we use something called multi-beam bathymetry and that 
involves bouncing sound off the seafloor and then recording how long it takes to come back. And then from that, you can map out sort of in a line across the ship, sort of a series of points of depth. Um, and from that, you then do you do it repeatedly so you ping as you move the ship along and using those you can all of those different dots eventually if you do a survey pattern you can create a map of what the seafloor looks like and then if you wanted to go up a step in resolution so once you've produced this map maybe at 50 meters say for a few thousand meters of water that would be a typical resolution that you get then you've got to start using other technology to get better resolution than that. So we use things called autonomous underwater vehicles. These are like torpedoes, but without any kind of military application. So instead of, they look like big yellow torpedoes, but inside them, they have all of the scientific equipment. So they often will contain a multi-beam, but because they can go underneath the sea and survey, we can get much closer to the seafloor, which means we can improve the resolution. So if you were doing multi-beam with an autonomous underwater vehicle, Instead of getting 50 meters resolution from the top of the sea, you'd get within sort of 100 meters of the bottom and get two meter resolution, which is a massive improvement. So that really, really helps with the mapping side. And then we also run other sensors on those. So we might look at like how hard the seafloor is. So using side scan sonar, that can be really helpful for mapping out sedimentary environments or looking at where different type biological organisms might live, mapping out all of those different things. So sediment sizes and types and where rocks are and where cliffs are. Side scan is also often used in archaeological type searches or searches for things that have been lost at sea because it has quite a big coverage. So that's useful. We collect geochemical measurements seeing a number of different instruments and sampling as well. And then if we want to really look at the seafloor, we can either use cameras, so we can mount cameras on autonomous vehicles, or we use remotely operated vehicles, which are usually called ROVs. And you quite often see those in documentaries being used. They're, they were used a lot for sort of imagery for things like Blue Planet. And those are robots that are operated from the surface. So an autonomous vehicle, we program and then we send it off and it runs on its own. Whereas an ROV, we, we have on a cable and we send it down to the bottom and it has all of these high resolution video cameras on it. It has sampling equipment. It'll have a really bespoke array of different sensors and equipment on it, depending on what the objective is. But we can use those to physically sample the seafloor. So to pick things up, to take video transects, to work out what's living where, to survey corals, that kind of thing. There's some really incredible footage that's been captured sort of serendipitously of an active volcanic eruption under the sea by an ROV. And then they can also do things like sample hydrothermal fluids. So the circulation of fluids in oceanic crust is a really important process, both for the development of the crust itself, but also for deep sea life you know these are really important environments and so we can do sampling of those environments we can reconstruct them using the imagery in very very high resolution so you can do something called photogrammetry which is where you use video or photographic data to reconstruct like sub centimeter resolution 3d models and then they can sample the fluids and the biology and the the mineralization and all of those different things with robots and then they bring it all back to the top we, we put it all back on the ship then we go home and then you usually spend, I mean, it'll be a team of tens of people will usually spend years analysing the data just from one expedition. So it's quite an undertaking, but yeah, pretty good. And then we have other geophysical methods as well. So things like uh, seismic studies, where you use different frequencies of sound to look beneath the surface, electromagnetics, which can tell us about porosity and permeability of the seafloor, and loads of other techniques. There are new ones being developed all the time. So fascinating. So how long are these cruises? Like a couple of weeks and then you spend years analyzing the data? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, they can be. They're variable. So it will depend on how far away you're going and what you're doing while you're there. And also, often it depends on the logistical sort of requirements of the ship. So different vessels have different endurances, so different amounts of time that they can be at sea. And so if you wanted to go for several months, you need to be on quite a big ship because otherwise it can't carry enough water or food or enough crew to support that. Typically, the research expeditions I go on are between about four and six weeks. I've done longer ones and I've done shorter ones. There are some expeditions that do scientific drilling of the seafloor. So they drill boreholes to look at the subsurface geology and biology as well. And those can be two months, but they're even longer because it's a big vessel and it takes a long time. Yeah, to drill those holes. Yeah, exactly. So are you, do you take core samples when you're during your sampling? Yeah, we do. So again, it depends on what the objectives are. So sometimes you really need that subsurface information to answer a question and sometimes you don't. We've done quite a lot of subsurface drilling using sort of seabed drill rigs instead of drilling from the ship. Like traditionally, when you think about drilling the seabed, you think about, I suppose, oil and gas type drilling where you have like a, a ship that with a big derrick on it that drills from the sea surface right through to the ocean floor. We tend not to use those mainly because they're extremely expensive. But IODP, the Integrated Ocean Discovery Program, do do that. But for my work, we tend to use smaller drills. So things that we sort of deploy over the side of the vessel and then they land on the seafloor and then they drill from there. We also have a little tiny drill for sampling of shallow cores that we run off the ROV. It's quite effective as well. And that information can be really, really useful because if you're just relying on picking things up off the surface, they're often quite sort of altered or old. You're only looking at one dimension, I suppose. And really, if you're looking at something that I'm interested in, which is the construction of ocean crust. The 3D dimension is really important. You want to know what lies beneath the surface um, as well. So those can be, they're hard to run. Logistically, it's extremely difficult to run something that technologically complicated in thousands of meters of water at high pressure, at cold temperatures in the dark. You know, it's, it's really logistically difficult, but it's really, really, really useful. So if you get one core you know, that is an invaluable record of what's happened in that area for a really long period. It's essentially a time capsule, right? Exactly. Yeah. And for those, you'll have, yeah, tens of people that will work on those for tens of years. That's amazing. I actually just saw an article the other day that they drilled the largest core sample ever in the Atlantic and maybe in all the oceans is like 38 feet long. <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. So I was on an expedition just a few weeks ago with a seabed rock drill and we drilled, I think it's one of the deepest cores that's ever been drilled at that water depth. It was 20 meters. So yeah, a, uh, it's not super long. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy to think about. And it's a big team that it takes to do that as well. So one of those bits of equipment, you will maybe have a team of eight or nine people just running that. So if you only have like 30 berths available on your ship, then uh, it's a big undertaking to take that many people, you know, you're cutting down on the other activities you can do. But then those records are so, so useful that I think it's really worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. So wait, you're, you said your core sample was 20 meters long? Yeah, I'm working in metric, not in feet. I know, but that's that's like 60 feet. So that would make this article inaccurate. Were you in the Atlantic? We were in the Atlantic. Yeah. But I mean, oh, almost double. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know the statistics, so I can't say that it was definitely the longest. It's the longest we've ever drilled in the Atlantic. But I mean, there are holes drilled by IODP again. So this like integrated ocean discovery program that are longer. Oh, I'm sorry. It was the deepest. It wasn't the longest. Yeah, I could believe that. Okay. They recently collected a 38-long cylindrical sediment sample from the deepest part of the Puerto Rico Trench, nearly five miles below the surface. 
yeah that makes sense <laughs> Um, because yeah like you, you do get much longer courts you know they've called hundreds even thousands of meters with IODP in different areas but they're really sort of spread out so because it's so expensive and it takes such a long time there aren't many of those cores available primarily your work is in the Atlantic correct but you've surveyed in the Pacific Ocean as well I was reading yeah so I started off working basically only in the Atlantic but I diversified into quite a lot of different processes. I became really interested in the interaction of volcanic systems and the ocean so in terms of both how water is important in volcanic eruptions but also how hydrothermal circulation in volcanoes influences how they erupt and what products they produce and so I started working not just on mid-ocean ridge volcanoes but also on those produced subduction zones so where one of the plates is being pushed underneath another and there you tend to get more explosive volcanic eruptions. So for example, the recent Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai eruption, I work quite a lot in that region in Tonga in the South Pacific. So I work there quite a lot because there's some really interesting volcano ocean dynamics going on in that region and a real variety of different types of volcano there as well. And then I've also worked in, I mean, all over the place, yeah, right across the Atlantic. I've worked um, on the Juan de Fuca Ridge and some of the other ridges um, in the Pacific as well, and then up towards the Arctic as well. So north of Iceland is another area that I've done quite a bit of work. And that's really beautiful up there, I recommend. Polar regions, they're stunning. Amazing. So you've just been working all over. Actually, I want to circle back. So the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is actually the North Atlantic continent trying to separate from the European continent. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's those plates moving apart from each other, and also South America moving away from Africa as well. So really, these volcanoes are just kind of everywhere because you mentioned they're also in subduction zones where tectonic plates are colliding and one's going underneath the other. Yeah, volcanoes are everywhere and a huge percentage of them are in the oceans. So we have a lot of completely submerged or partially submerged volcanoes. And we just know a lot less about them because they're harder to look at, harder to monitor, harder to get to, harder to even know where they are. So most subsea volcanoes are probably unmapped and we don't even know where they are, let alone anything else about them. So what are some repercussions from this? Like you just mentioned a volcano eruption in Tonga. We feel these. They're not just things that happen in the ocean. I mean, a lot of times they can be, but we feel these every now and again, correct? Yeah, we do. So it's been really interesting the last sort of 10 years as publicly available satellite data has become a thing because we used to not know really when volcanoes in the ocean had erupted at all unless they impacted on land. And they impact in lots of different ways. So you can have big, huge eruptions that produce tsunamis. This is what ha- happened in this Tongan eruption. Luckily, the tsunami wasn't too big and this volcano was only partially submerged. So we knew where it was because the top of it sticks above the sea and it had erupted quite recently. So we knew where that one was and we had some idea that it was likely to erupt again in the future, although it wasn't really monitored at all. But for a lot of volcanoes, if they lie completely underneath the ocean and they don't produce, I don't know, a tsunami or we get things called pumice rafts, which is where you get floating rafts of lava. So really, really bubbly lava that's so light that it floats on top of the sea. And those can be a real pain. They can fill up. So they're bad for boats. Obviously, you don't want to sail your lovely yacht into a load of pumice or even a a big tanker you get tankers where the water intakes suck in the pumice and then it makes their engines overheat and stuff so that's bad where the eruptions break the surface you can get uh, big eruption columns which are a problem for aircraft Uh, that's pretty well known and then there's all the normal sort of repercussions of, of ash and stuff if they break the surface you also can get hazards that are sort of not as obvious so there are several regions in the ocean where 
volcanoes are thought to have erupted when vessels were in the area. And we didn't really know what had happened, but the vessels just disappeared. And some people think that if obviously if something blows up underneath your, your ship, it's not going to be a super great situation. But also you can get um, degassing of volcanoes, which can reduce how buoyant your vessel is. So if you have water that's full of gas bubbles, all of a sudden things that were floating won't float anymore. So they, they have really variable hazards. And until we had satellite coverage, we didn't really know where eruptions were happening unless one of those hazards had hit human populations. And now we have a better idea. So we still don't have 100% coverage in high resolution of the Earth. But usually if there's a decent sized volcanic eruption in relatively shallow water, we'll see it now from satellites. Now in deep water, that still isn't the case. So if you've got a volcano that's at several thousands of metres, you're very, very unlikely to have any kind of impact. There are a few sort of like freak volcanoes. There's one called Havre, which is near New Zealand. And that had, it's at like a thousand metres and it still managed to produce a pumice raft. And there's a really great group of people working on that, trying to figure out how and why that happened and the processes that that caused it, because it's very unusual. But usually in deep water, even with satellites, we wouldn't know that eruption has happened because you just won't see it at the surface. Now, luckily for us, very, very deep water eruptions usually aren't too hazardous. They could be. I mean, you could have a very large landslide in deep water that could potentially, I don't know, displace water and cause a tsunami. But it's very, very unlikely. So most of the hazards are associated with volcanoes that are shallower. But again, even those aren't aren't well mapped. So there are quite a lot around Japan, around Tonga, where we don't really know how often they erupt, how much of a hazard they pose, that kind of thing. And a major eruption at one of those volcanoes, like, like that was just demonstrated in Tonga, can have really, really big impacts on coastal communities in the region. And at the moment, we tend not to monitor them, which I, I mean, it's, it's a real bugbear of mine that we sort of just ignore them. Because when you have a volcano on land, if you have a city nearby or people nearby, or even if you don't really, but definitely if you've got populations you know, near to it, you're going to have dedicated monitoring facilities. So you're going to be looking at how much the ground is moving, how it's shaking, what the chemistry of the gases coming out of it are, how often it's erupted in the past, where those lava flows have gone, whether or not it had explosive eruptions or effusive eruptions, those kind of things. But even if you're just a little bit offshore, so volcanoes that are very, very close to shore, we don't have any of that information and none of them are monitored, really. We have, I think there are two, and I mean, not even proper, but two proper-ish subsea volcano observatories in the entire world. And when we think that a huge percentage of our volcanoes lie underwater, that's an incredibly low number when like, compared to things that are on land. Only two? Where are they located? So one is in the Pacific and the other one's being developed on just off Santorini. Okay, so we have like one and a half. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, there may be others that I'm not like aware of, but there, there are certainly not very many volcano observatories for volcanoes that lie underwater. And there are entire regions where we don't have any monitoring whatsoever. We tend to rely on seismic for subsea volcanoes and they'll often tell you if something's erupting, but the coverage is really, really patchy. And it also really depends on whether or not the countries around that area are set up or are able to maintain seismic observatories. So, you know, you can install the system somewhere, but if there's nobody to go and maintain it, or if there isn't, I don't know, a, a university department that are interested in that, or you don't have the right skill sets in that area, those observatories will just fall into disrepair. So there are large regions of the ocean where we don't have good measurements. And that means we can only detect quite big earthquakes using stations much further away. But volcanoes are often preceded by quite small earthquakes. Yeah, so an eruption is usually preceded by small earthquakes, not by big earthquakes. You can get big earthquakes, but mostly small ones. And so if you only have a, a seismic coverage that can hear something big, 
you're going to miss all of that information before the eruption happens and potentially not get any warning whatsoever. And then these eruptions are really unpredictable. So Hunga Tonga, Hunga Harpai, which is, I mean, it's not a, a mid-ocean ridge volcano. This is an arc volcano and therefore more explosive than we'd expect. It's a wet volcano? It's an arc volcano. So it's produced a subduction zone rather than where the plates are moving apart. They're moving together. And in those areas, you get different types of volcanoes there because where one plate is being subducted, you're driving a lot of material off that as it goes into the mantle. And it means that the magmas are more complicated and they tend to contain more what we call volatiles. So more water, more carbon dioxide. And these are the kind of things that drive explosive eruptions. So you tend to get quite sticky magma that's hard to erupt, but that's full of bubbles. And when they sort of expand, when you depressurize that system, those bubbles expand explosively and you get a really big explosive volcanic eruption. And that's much more typical in, in subduction zones than it is in spreading zones. Uh, you do get explosive eruptions in spreading centres, but not as often. So, yeah, where you can have those, those big explosive eruptions, we might have no warning whatsoever that they're going to happen. And where you've got water as a component, they're even more unpredictable because when you have hot things meeting water, you flash that water either, I mean, at depth of supercritical fluid, but in shallow water, you flash it to steam. And when you get steam, you've got expansion. So you start to increase the explosivity of an eruption because of its interaction with the seawater, as well as just the expansion of the bubbles within the magma that's driving it. So these eruptions are really, really unpredictable. These volcanoes that lie underwater are really, really unpredictable, and we don't really monitor them. And I think that's a massive gap. And it's, it's logistically very difficult to monitor them. And that's why we don't do it. I think you know, that's something that we probably should start thinking about doing. Yeah. Yeah. We chatted a little bit before the recording about, you know, monitoring in space versus monitoring in the ocean. And I was, you know, it's kind of comparable, but I almost make the argument that it's harder to do research and exploration in the ocean than space. Cause you mentioned earlier, you can't even really see with satellites through the ocean water and it's super corrosive. The saltwater environment is not forgiving. It's very hostile and it eats equipment. <laughs> It does. It's super hostile. And it's also difficult because, I mean, it's not an exciting prospect to monitor a bunch of things where probably nothing's going to happen. Like that can be quite a hard sell. So as a scientist, we tend to try and sell projects. You know, we, we apply for funding for specific projects. But, you know, your funders are going to want to see an outcome from that. So if you say, oh, I want to put, you know, an observatory on this volcano, you'll get the comment back. But what if nothing happens? <laughs> I mean, great. That's really good. So that, that volcano didn't erupt. We have that data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a funder, that's not a super exciting project. So it's difficult to get the kind of the, the commitment required, like to fund those kind of projects, to fund monitoring, unless it's a very, very obvious hazard connection. And in some places, there is, and that is starting to happen. But really, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of volcanoes underwater, and it's not realistic to monitor all of them. So it's also quite difficult to know which ones are necessarily important and which ones should be monitored and which shouldn't. So it's not a simple thing to do. Right. That makes sense. I want to take a step back. You mentioned earlier, you know, these bubbles, these gas bubbles are coming up from the bottom of the sea and as they expand, they can make ships less buoyant, right? Because all of a sudden the water is less dense underneath of them. This has been attributed to like how the Bermuda Triangle works. Yeah. <laughs> It's like oceanic farts. I just think this concept is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, so they say the same thing in the uh, Bermuda Triangle, but I think there it's, isn't it to do with gas hydrates rather than 
volcanic activity, like it's methane that's coming out there rather than any other kind of gases, I think. So it's it's a similar process in terms of buoyancy, but a different process that's driving it. So wait, what's the process that drives the methane release then? Oh, this is starting to get outside of my area of expertise. But I think it's decay of organic matter in the subsurface. Then you can get leakage of those reservoirs, like that kind of stuff. Like any methane decay. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I I think it makes sense, but as I say, not really my my sphere of expertise. So we have no idea how often these volcanoes erupt. What about like on more, I guess, monitored sites, like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, right? I feel like there's a lot of research that's been going on there. Is there some sort of rough timeline on how often there's volcanoes erupting in different areas? No. I mean, you can, no, you can do like a back of the envelope calculation. So you know how fast the plates are moving apart and you know how thick the crust is and you know the average volume of an eruption. So you can say, okay, well, if this segment is moving, I'm going to try and do some maths in my head, which isn't going to go well. But if it's moving, say, like the spreading rate on the Middle Atlantic Ridge on average is about two centimeters a year. So if you're moving your plates two centimeters apart and your crust is four to five kilometers thick in that area, how much magma is would that require to fill the gap? How much lava would be required to fill that gap? And then if an average eruption is however big, how often does that need to happen? And estimates would be you maybe need one eruption on each segment. So another degree of complexity, but mid, like mid-ocean ridges are usually broken up into segments because you're spreading on a sphere. You can't just have a single ridge that's like a straight line. It sort of zigzags around the place. And they tend to be between about 50 and 100 kilometers long. And so you think that you maybe have one eruption there every maybe 50 to 100 years. So they'd be really regular because the Mid-Atlantic Ridge has tens of segments. I mean, probably, I don't know exactly how many, but maybe 30 segments. So you're probably having an eruption almost every year somewhere on the Middle Atlantic Ridge, but we don't know where at all. Amazing. This is like <laughs> just the degree of complexity and mystery behind this is just astounding to me. Yeah, they are complex systems. And I like I think that can also make it quite inaccessible because, you know, you start saying, oh, the plates are moving apart. And so you get melting underneath them and then you get volcanic eruptions. But then there's all of these other degrees of complexity and like sometimes actually you don't get one and other times you get multiple ones and you know it's a there are so many variables involved that it can be really really hard to make any kind of meaningful estimate of any of it without measurement and then it's such a big area that measuring it is logistically almost impossible yeah so we talked you know we talked about different sections of the ocean you mentioned there's even different subsections of like the mid-atlantic ridge and i mean i saw you have a paper on the tropic seamount Is there somewhere, and I've tried to look, that has a name for, or like a map of everything with its name that's under the ocean, right? Like I understand not everything's mapped out, but is there somewhere that has a map of everything that is named that you can look at? Not that I'm aware of. There are maps of parts of the ocean that are like geological maps that will have things named. But in terms of just the names of seamounts, not that I'm really aware. The best, one of the best I found is Google Earth tends to have quite a lot of them in, but you'd have to know where they were to find the names. But otherwise, that information is really disparate. There are lots of like online repositories that try and bring together data. So if you wanted to look at like all of the bathymetric data and stuff, there are places you can go to do that. So there's the global multi-resolution topography of the Earth. You can Google that. That's freely available. You can just download it. And if you are able to use a GIS type program, you can view it as well. But otherwise you can download it as imagery, I think. And that will show you what the the seafloor looks like in the best resolution that we currently have it. 
but not in terms of naming things. And actually, that can be quite controversial. There are lots of things in the oceans that have multiple names. There are lots of volcanoes with more than one name. And also the names of things often change. So I'm, I've just published a paper recently on a volcanic eruption from just off Tonga. And that volcano used to be known as Metis Shoal. But obviously that was not a, a Tongan name. And so it's recently been renamed as Lataiki, which is better because that's a Tongan name. It's in Tongan waters. But because of that, there's a lot of crossover. And often if people go somewhere and they're not aware of the name, they just rename it. So even in some arcs, you have volcanoes that are known as Volcano 1, 2, 3, plus they're also ABC, plus they're also somebody's name. Just for volcanoes, the Smithsonian have a really good database of volcanoes and where they are and what they're known as, usually all of their names if they're aware of them, as well as histories of volcanic eruptions that are known. So that can be a really good place to look for volcanoes. But just in terms of features, it's pretty much all over the place. Yeah, this is what I realized. I found, uh, what was it called? Marine Geofeatures or Geoscience, something like that. But you had to like actually know the name of what you wanted to look for. You couldn't just pop up a map and explore around. Yes. And I think this is a real problem with, I mean, all science in some ways, but particularly marine science is the data is really distributed. And if you're not an expert user, so if you're not used to looking at these like weird data formats, you know, if you don't have a background in hydrographic surveying or, I don't know, you know, geochemical analysis, you can go and get this data and you can download it. But actually doing anything meaningful with it is really hard. So a lot of the time it's not very accessible. And there are some scientific initiatives that are trying to make that better, to try and make things more accessible for you know, public use, for outreach, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a real problem. And it's a problem within science as well. Like even finding out what data is available for a single area can be quite difficult. So before I go somewhere, I'll, I'll do a, a literature search and figure out who's been there before and what data exists. And then luckily it's quite collaborative. You can usually email somebody and be like, oh, I see you've been here. Can I have your geophysical data or whatever? And they'll be like, yes, of course you can. But if, if somebody hasn't published on that, it's difficult to know. And if you don't have access to publications, which most people wouldn't, you know, I have access to a library through my institution that allows me to access all of these different publications. But somebody at home wouldn't have that kind of access. So it's even harder for them to know what's been done where and, and by whom and when. And so I think, you know, as a community, we need to start doing a better job of making this data more coherent, and more accessible. And that is definitely starting to happen with bathymetry data. But a lot of the other data sets, so the geophysical stuff, the geochemical is lagging behind, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you know, I was researching you and then I'm like, oh, you know, Mid-Atlantic Ridge, I've just come into a recent fascination with it. And I'm like, what are the parts of it? And like, there's just some like plains and plateaus in general that are named, but that's about it. Like, there's not much data out there. But then I found like, you know, the Tropic Seamount, like you mentioned. So there are smaller things that are named. They're just not in one place. Yes, that's true. And also things have often been named like historically. So if it's a lot of the sites that were originally looked at, like, oh, there's one called Challenger Deep, which is like a part of the Marianas Trench. And that was the reason it's called that is because the HMS Challenger went there in like, I think it was like 1872 or around then, 1870 something. And they figured out that this was like the, the deepest part of the ocean that they'd found. And that name stuck because it was an original study site. So people then kept going there, kept going there, kept going there. But for regions that, that weren't explored in 1870-something and then have been explored 10 times in five years by other people, they often have more than one name. That makes sense. All right. Well, this is a project for anyone that's listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're going to need a lot of patience. Assemble all of the names into a map. I want it on my wall. 
<laughs> I love it. So could you walk me through, like you're deploying these ROVs. What does the bottom look like? Can you see live feed or are you just getting everything post deployment? Again, it depends on the instrument. With an ROV, you get it all live, which is great. So you can look around. Yeah. What does it look like? What is it? What are you seeing? Well, it depends where you go. So everywhere looks different on the seafloor. And like you often go down expecting one thing and then you get something completely different. And the other thing that's interesting about working with it is because so we have like big lights on the ROV, but even so that light attenuates quite quickly in water. So you don't see very far. So you'll maybe see like a maximum of 10 meters ahead of you. And then everything else is dark at the bottom of the ocean. So it's quite an alien environment. Like, you know, regions right in the middle of the ridge will look rocky. There'll be pillow lavas everywhere. There's loads and loads of just rubble on the seafloor, just like broken rock. And it's I always find it quite surprising, like how much of that there is. You think a lava is a big, strong thing, but they just fall apart on the bottom of the sea. They're rubbish. So, yeah, you see like lots of rocks and rubble and then like strange animals and weird corals and the biologists get very excited I was on tropic seamount actually we saw a fish that I'm pretty sure had feet and that terrified me I, apparently it's completely normal and they exist but to me it looked like it was going to crawl out the ocean and tell us off a fish that had feet and this is in thousands of feet of water <laughs> yeah yeah well I mean this is what it looked like to me I'm not a biologist <laughs> but yeah this this fish had these like that were just like feet it was just standing and staring at us and I was like that that's an angry fish anyway yeah so you see like a load of things that like a load of interesting biology rocks other areas you'll see loads more sediment so some areas just look like flat sandy plains like a desert with like nothing in there is lots of stuff that lives in those areas but it's not obvious when you when you're looking around usually you see much more biodiversity on hard grounds so regions where you have something hard because then you can get things like corals and sponges that grow there and then they form a habitat for other animals so you get higher biodiversity on harder areas if you've got a new lava flow those are really interesting because you get lots of really small areas of like ephemeral hydrothermal venting so you get small hot vents but then they're only there for like maybe a year or two before they they die out because there's no real system feeding them and then the whole lava flow will be covered for like like it sort of evolves it erupts and there's nothing on it it's just like broken glass and then it gets covered in like a bacterial mat which is like gross it looks all sort of yellow and slimy for a while and then that goes away and then you start it starts to eventually be colonized by things like corals and sponges and stuff so yeah that can be really interesting in fact the biology can be a really good way of looking at how old something actually might be you know from obviously it's it's interesting for biologists as well but from my my geology centric perspective it's quite a handy tool for that so yeah it looks really different and we also see like really dramatic sort of like cliffs and canyons and fissures and the middle atlantic ridge in particular looks quite a lot like parts of iceland if anybody's ever been to iceland or wants to go and have a sort of drive around on google earth there's some really similar features in iceland you see these big cracks in the ground which are sort of deep they look like they've got no bottom they do have bottoms but but yeah they're like big deep cracks we see those like the exact same thing on the seafloor that makes sense because it's connected right the mid-atlantic ridge connects to iceland it's part of it exactly so the mid-atlantic ridge goes over iceland but iceland is also what we call a hot spot so it's an area where you have more melting than one would expect in the mantle underneath so you get a lot more volcanic eruptions there than you do anywhere else which is why it's a big high but yeah so a lot of the mid-atlantic ridge looks like that and then in some areas, if you're really lucky, you get to see a hydrothermal vent. And that's always a really magical experience because you get this like incredible biology, these like amazing chimney structures, which are 
beautiful and like fragile and change the whole time incredible biology and diversity so what is what is a hydrothermal vent then hydrothermal vents happen where you have fluid circulation into hot crust they can be purely seawater or they can be a mixture of seawater and some kind of fluid that's coming off whatever magma chamber you have deep down but usually it's primarily seawater and it it gets because things are on the bottom of the sea right everything's quite wet and you get seawater pulled in through like cracks and faults and fissures all over the place and if you've got something hot at depth so if that water's getting deep enough it'll get heated up and then once it gets hot enough it starts to rise buoyantly and then it rises towards the surface and usually those sort of pathways sort of converge they come together because they'll be above whatever is heating them so you usually get a hydrothermal vent where you've got a combination of a heat source and some kind of permeability pathway. So a fault or a fracture or a couple of faults or a couple of fractures that are intersecting. So the fluids can get in, they can get heated and then they can get out again. And when you get fluid, hot fluid traveling through rocks, it will dissolve things out of them. So it will dissolve a lot of minerals and metals and other things. And then as it comes out the top and meets cold seawater, it cools down again, so it precipitates them. And that's why you get chimneys. So you get precipitation at all different parts of the system. So you get it below the seafloor as well. But the bit that we see above will be the last stages of precipitation as that fluid meets seawater and things precipitate out of it. And you get different sort of types. You get what we call black smokers, where you have an obvious plume of like hot, what looks like smoke. It's actually like dissolved stuff in the fluids precipitating out as the the plume disperses but in other places we don't have that we just have like clear fluids coming out the top and usually in that case pretty much all of the metals and things have already been precipitated from that fluid deeper down in the system so yeah a hydrothermal vent is somewhere where you have hot fluid coming out the seafloor we also get diffuse venting as well so like larger areas where you don't form chimneys those tend to be lower temperature but hydrothermal vents can be hundreds of degrees hundreds of degrees and chimneys in the ocean fascinating fascinating place So I also saw in your research, you do blue mining. Could you explain what this is? Just simply mining in the ocean, correct? Or you research it? This is quite a controversial topic. We work purely the science side of it. So currently there is not really any kind of legal mining in the ocean. Primarily, that's at least not in the international oceans. People can kind of do what they want within their own areas of research. On my side, we provide a lot of information about how mining might impact the seafloor and how mineralization is distributed. So we're not involved at all in any kind of active mining. We don't do any mining research. We don't do resource estimates. We don't do any of the like that side of it. But what we do try and do is provide information on how and where we think impacts might be, what we think systems might look like at depth and how and where we think mineralization occurs. So it's, it's like, it's difficult to describe the diversity of things that we do. But for, so for example, we did like a project where we were looking at mine plume dispersal. So one of the primary things that people are worried about with seafloor mining is that the sediment plume that will be produced, it will be damaging because you can, you know, if you have things that can't move away, you can bury them under sediment. So one of the experiments that we did on Tropic was to look at we produced a fake plume and then we measured using an autonomous vehicle where it was going and how it was dispersing and what was falling out where and what the density of sediment was and where that was happening and how that was controlled by ocean currents and that kind of thing. So those are the kind of bits of information that we provide. But really, we don't do 
mining. We do science. Well, I figured you didn't do the mining part. I figured you were evaluating what was there and how it would affect things. So that makes perfect sense. So what, what did your sediment study uncover or cover? <laughs> well, so our sediment study suggested we needed another sediment study. What we found actually was that for this experiment that we did, we didn't get fallout over a particularly wide distance. So most of the material fell out of the water column very close to where the plume was being generated. And we didn't see a huge amount of evidence for it further away. But it was very much like a sort of trial study. Actually, just at the moment, we're proposing to do a much bigger study. It would do a much better job of it. So producing a a more realistic plume with the right chemistry, the right grain sizes, that kind of thing. And then surveying it in multiple different ways to see how and where we'd expect to see fallout. We'll see if that gets funded. But there's a lot of interest in protecting the environment around seafloor mining. And I think that it's you know, as I said, it's like, it's a controversial topic and it's difficult to talk about because people feel very emotively about it one way or the other. As a scientist, I try not to have an opinion, I suppose, but I think that what it is an opportunity to do is to provide the information that we can about the environment, about the impacts, about the ecosystems before any activity starts, which isn't something that we've been able to do on land. I don't know whether or not that will happen. I don't know how seafloor mining will progress in the future. And I don't know what decisions will be taken by policymakers, but my hope is that we are able to characterize ecosystems and impacts before there's any active mining. I like that. So I guess we should back up here a minute and explain why would you even want to mine the ocean floor in the first place? Yeah. So, I mean, there are, there are a number of different reasons that people want to mine the ocean floor. The primary one is that there are a number of different elements that have been defined as a critical. So where the future sort of demand is likely to outstrip supply and where supply can't be met by our current resources or by recycling. Now, these are all predictions. So there are obviously errors on this and, you know, there'll be technological advances. So perhaps what we predict we need now might not be the case in the future. For example, at the moment, we think we need maybe a lot of lithium for batteries, but battery technology is advancing all the time. So actually, maybe that won't be the case. But there are some metals that look like they are particularly critical and where it's very very hard to meet them with like our current sort of resources you know and and some on land mining resources are also not great they don't have great human rights records they some of them use child labor they're not very safe they're not very environmentally friendly so mining as a whole topic is is really quite complex and probably more than I can cover and so there is a push to find new resources for these very sort of critical needed elements I mean, one of the primary drivers for that is moving towards net zero. So sort of developing greener technologies, green energy production, electric cars, those kind of things. But I I don't know if that would be the only driver because, you know, we also put those elements in things like computers and phones and technology that isn't just for net zero. So there's, there's an economic push both from green development, but also from industry just in general, as there would be for, for any kind of resource, really. And so in order to meet that demand, one of the options is to look at seafloor resources. And there are some places in the ocean that are particularly enriched in certain elements that are thought to be useful. The big one that people are talking about at the moment is the clarion clipperton zone. So that's a big area in the Pacific where there are what we call nodules. So ferromanganese nodules, they're usually called because they have iron and manganese in. But they also have a lot of other things in as well that are potentially useful. I mean, in that area, they basically just precipitate out of seawater, but they take a long time to form and they look like cannonballs, they're like big round black 
rocks on the seafloor that just precipitate between like the sort of water and the sediment interface. And so because they're loose, they're relatively easy to collect. But there's also an issue with collecting them because I think I said earlier, but in the sea, when you have a hard substrate, you tend to have an increase in biodiversity. So most of the area around the chlorine clipton zone is like a sandy sort of deserty area and you know stuff lives in there, but the biodiversity is lower than if you had a hard ground. And when you have nodules, you provide a hard ground. So then they are colonized by certain species that can then produce an environment that is appealing to other organisms. So you get this sort of feedback of increased biodiversity. So there's a lot of work going on now about whether or not you can sort of replace them with other things. So yeah, because they're easy to pick up, however, this is sort of technologically the closest we're coming to major exploitation of the seafloor. Now, if you're a company and you want to do that, there's a lot of different loopholes you have to go through. So there's in international oceans, so in, in international areas, areas that aren't owned by any country, it's all governed by the International Seabed Authority. And there's lots of information about them online. If people are interested, they could go and have a look. But they go through quite a strict process where you have to apply for areas. You have to meet a lot of different criteria. You have to do certain impact assessments, et cetera. And then when you submit all of that information, you can get certain licenses. So at the moment, nobody has an exploitation license at all for that area. There are none that have been issued. And that's because at the moment, the regulations for environmental impacts aren't really set. So we don't really know. The ISA haven't yet declared, at least to my knowledge, they haven't currently declared what the regulations are going to be for those areas. So what companies would have to do if they wanted to exploit So the only licenses that have currently been issued are for exploration. So this is just to look at what's there, to conduct studies of uh, biodiversity, to do some geochemical analyses to see what their potential resource might be. And most of the companies have been pretty tight-lipped about that. So it's hard to know at the moment really what the resource is there and whether or not and how economically viable it would be to exploit because mining the seafloor is extremely expensive. And technologically very difficult. You know, we talked about how difficult it is to do any kind of seafloor exploration. And so if you're running quite complicated equipment in deep water off a vessel, your costs are going to be really, really high. So companies will have to balance costs against whether or not they think that their resource is going to be worth that. And I, yeah, I don't know what the the outcomes of those kind of studies are going to be. But yeah, the idea is that you could help to meet a demand that can't otherwise be met. And it's not the only option. I mean, you don't have to mine the seafloor. There are other options for increasing the amount of resources we have. So you could look at mining in regions that previously were inaccessible. So I wouldn't support this, but for example, in the Arctic, where you're getting melting due to climate change, you're opening up pathways, you're reducing permafrost, those kind of things. And all of a sudden, there are areas that previously were inaccessible that now are accessible. So potentially that's a resource. Or you could mine at lower grade, so where you have lower concentrations over much bigger areas in regions that we already have mines, but where currently it's not economically feasible to exploit them. But for that to be the case, metal prices would have to increase. So so it's difficult because none of the options are perfect. You know, when we talk about resources, I think it's very easy to be against everything. And I understand why people would feel that way like I personally want to protect the environment and I don't want to see damage to our natural world you know this isn't the area I'm really researching in but it's not something that I'd want to see but also you know we tend to disconnect our own usage of things from where they come from so when you look around at your house or whatever you know if it wasn't grown it probably came out of a mine 
so unless we are also prepared as a society to change the way that we consume metals and the way that we consume technology and the way that we consume everything really then there's going to be a demand for it and people are going to continue to make profits off extracting it makes total sense which kind of leads me really nicely into and I usually say this a little bit later but (laughs) at the end of each episode I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world and you kind of already hinted at it already but what would you like my audience to take from your episode today I guess I'd like people to look at something that they use every day. So their phone or their computer or, I don't know, a printer or their house or their car. And just for like 10 minutes, research where the things that make it come from. Like this could be your dinner, but something like have a look at something that that is a really common everyday thing that you use that you might replace regularly and look at what it's made of and where those resources came from and then start to scale that up across your entire consumption because it's really incredible how much as individuals we consume without even realizing it and I think that it's really helpful like you shouldn't feel bad about that like it's not an individual's responsibility to fix you know these like international global political issues but I think it is really good learning activity to figure out how much you actually consume and to think about where those things are coming from and what the impact on the environment might be of the way that you live and then based on that I don't know, sometimes you can find ways in which maybe you can just slightly reduce your impact individually, which if we all do it, is a useful thing to do. Absolutely. I love this. I've been doing this lately with both my technology use and as well as my food, just kind of like, what's the source? (laughs) And it's uh, been very interesting to see. Yeah, it's mad. Like I live in the UK. So as an island, we import a huge amount of our food. And I switched recently to trying to buy only vegetables that were grown in the UK. And it was really difficult. Like, it's really difficult. First of all, it's difficult to find that information. And secondly, it's difficult to then, like, find an alternative. So, like, you know, you have to, I mean, unless you're willing to really eat a lot of root vegetables in the UK, it's pretty hard to only eat things that are grown here, actually. Like, if you want diversity in your diet, which most people do. So, yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, no, definitely not. It's funny. We've all kind of gotten used to eating more or less the same things globally. Uh, at least in, you know, first world countries. So, and we're used to diversity in our diets, but if you look at like our ancestors, it was very seasonal diversity, but day to day for large periods of time, it probably looked very similar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it probably did. It was a lot of like stewed beets. Yes. (laughs) Necessarily the way I want to live. So (laughs) hopefully there's like a a happy compromise somewhere. Yes. I agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) All right. What is your favorite sea creature and why? This is a difficult question. Oh, it's the hardest question. (laughs) It's the hardest question. My answer changes day to day if it makes you feel better. Yeah. I mean, it's really difficult. I really did like that fish with feet. What would be my favorite sea creature? I think the one that brings everybody to the light are the dolphins and the whales. And I've had some really great like whale interactions working in Tonga off small boats where like We often have hydrophones so we can check that the volcano we're on isn't about to blow us up. And on the hydrophones, you can hear the whale song, which is really beautiful. Oh, so you have humpbacks. Yeah, 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 we do. So that's really lovely. But also we see some creepy stuff at the bottom of the ocean. And like everybody hates, there are these like fish that people call rat tails. I don't know what their actual biological Latin name would be. And everyone hates them. I have a lot of respect for those guys because they are everywhere. (laughs) Really, like really quite tough like conditions. So yeah. 
I like them too. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of anything octopus related as well. So I think they're pretty incredible. We occasionally see them, not very often, but when we do, it's always like a really magical moment. We saw a really beautiful Dumbo octopus, like the big pink ones. Yeah, that was like just beautiful watching it just sort of float away. Yeah, they're really incredible. That's amazing. What does the ocean mean to you? That's a difficult question to you. To me, I think the ocean is such a fundamental yet misunderstood thing. So I I guess for me, I've always found the ocean very mysterious. Like even when you go to the beach and you like take your shoes off and paddle, people are creeped out by the things that are brushing around their ankles, right? And that's that's pretty close to shore. So for me, I, I think it represents maybe one of the last things that I think is really mysterious that we really truly still have a lot to learn about on this planet. So it's an opportunity and it's exciting and adventurous to go and explore it and to see it. And I think it's a real privilege to do the job that I do and to go to see and see things that people have never seen before. I may never see again, you know, I might be the only person that's ever seen that pillow lava or that rock or that fish. And I think that's like a real, yeah, a real privilege and to work with such great people as well. And the other thing I think it does, I suppose this isn't directly the ocean, but one of the things that I love about working at sea is you get these teams of people and they're so interesting and diverse and the teamwork is so intense. When you go and you are completely remote, you know, you are in the middle of nowhere. We have to do medicals because you can't call an ambulance. You know, you can't like evacuate it. It would take you a week to get to shore. So you can be so truly remote. And so when things go wrong, when you get a problem, you really do see this like incredible level of teamwork that I have not seen in any other job that I've done. So people really work together, like the solutions are ingenious and often hilarious. You know, we've tied socks onto things to fix them and all sorts. And so that side of it, I really like as well. Like the remoteness really does bring people together. Yes, I could see that. I often say just the marine science world in general, you just get to work with some of the coolest people. (laughs) Yeah, you really do. I think it's such a diverse and interesting community. Absolutely. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? I would use it for volcano monitoring. I think we are so limited currently, both in our understanding of volcanic systems at all, and also in terms of the hazards that they present to coastal communities, to marine infrastructure and vessels, that kind of thing. I think that if I had unlimited funding, I'd monitor all volcanoes in the ocean. It would be a lot of funding, though. So, <laughs> so that's, yeah, if it was a blank check, I'd spend it on that. And then on a smaller scale, I think there's some really interesting work to be done around the way in which fluids interact with volcanic systems to change eruption dynamics. So whether or not they make volcanic eruptions more or less explosive. So if it was a slightly smaller blank check, I'd spend it on that. And then finally, if I can have a third project, I think we can all do a better job of communicating the research that we're doing. Like, I would really like to see the work that we do reach a bigger audience. And I think part of the problem with that is that, you know, as scientists, we're maybe not the best place people to be doing that job. You know, I I like talking about my science with people, but I'm not necessarily the person that's best place to identify what would be interesting to somebody from a completely different I don't know, way of life from a completely different 
you know, career path or or background or whatever. So, yeah, I think that we could probably engage better with people who are professionals in, in science communication and do a much better job of communicating the results that are important both to people who are developing policy, but also just to the general public as well. Yes. Well, you're taking a step in the right direction chatting on a podcast. <laughs> what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be just an amazing research cruise out in the field, best time, or it could be a time where things happened and it just makes a really great story now. What is the best story? I suppose like most of my favorite memories from being at SEA, things that have gone wrong that we fixed. <laughs> It usually makes the best stories. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many examples of that happening. Murphy's Law is usually at play during field work in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there we've had equipment where we've melted bits of it because a software update didn't work quite right. And we've had to fix it with like chewing gum. We've had, yeah, I, there were just so many. <laughs> My absolute favorite stories, I suppose, are probably the time that I got to lead a research cruise that was the first time I was ever what we call the PI or the PSO so like the senior scientists on a research vessel and that was to the Arctic and it was the second time I've been but the Arctic is one of the most beautiful places to work in the world and we're working near a place called Eggman Bank so normally when you're quite far away from land the sea's quite deep but in this area there's like this one volcano that's insane it's like weirdly big and it shouldn't be there like it's it's it doesn't deserve to be there. It's not the right kind of volcano. But the sea comes up to about 40 metres. So most of it's about 2,000. And then there's this one bit that's at 40 metres. And because of that, you get so whales, but also a real diversity of other marine life. So you get like really, really, really incredible things just sort of float past you on the boat. And you also get ice. And the first time I was ever there, we were just sort of like sailing around we weren't expecting there to be any ice because it was summer and then I woke up and I could hear this like tapping along the side of of the vessel that we were on and there'd been some like ice shelving carving event from a glacier and it had just by chance drifted across the area that we were working in and that was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen because yeah I woke up I went to bed and it was sunny all the time and I woke up and we were just surrounded by like ice uh, which was quite a surprise but that place is also particularly magical because during the summer, the sun doesn't set. So you have 24 hour sunshine and that's really, really incredible. Um, so you can sit out like on the deck at all times of day and it's just always sunny um, <laughs> unless it's raining or cloudy or snowing. But that combination of like incredible like wildlife and surprise ice and 24 hour a day sunshine was really a pretty magical trip to be on. So that's probably my favorite expedition that I've done. Although everything did break and we did fix it. So yeah, it was also a really great team of people. Awesome. Great story. Thank you for sharing. If the audience wants to find you, connect with you, learn more about you or your research, where's the best place to do so? I'm on Twitter. So you can follow me at Isabel Yo, which is my name, no spaces. Or I have a department webpage. But if you just type my name into Google, because I've got quite an unusual surname, I tend to be the first person to pop up. So yeah, they can look at my page at National Oceanography Centre or Twitter, or uh, I think I'm on LinkedIn even, but uh, I don't really look at that. So so maybe not that. But yeah, those two are probably the best way to contact me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I love chatting with you and nerding out about volcanoes. No, thank you so much for having me. It's nice to talk about them. They are ignored and they, they shouldn't be. <laughs> 
<laughs> we're bringing them to light. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone has to listen now. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.